All right, everyone, welcome back to the Mindful Hunter podcast. I'm your host, as always, Jay Nickel. Today is episode nine, and we are going to get into arrow building 101. So I'm going to do my best to lay the groundwork for what you need to do to select an arrow for your particular setup, talk about some components you may want to add, what you should be thinking about as far as point weight and total weight for the arrow, and then I'm going to walk through the kind of basics of how you would actually build an arrow at home, what tools you would need, and the process you would actually go through. As usual, I threw up a Q&A on my Instagram, so I have some decent questions to touch on at the end if I don't cover those particular questions throughout the content of the podcast. Also, thank you as always for the continued support, likes, comments, shares, subscribes on all your popular podcasting platforms. If you could take a moment and continue to do that, I would greatly appreciate it. If you need to get in touch with me to ask for some clarification or to correct something that you heard on this podcast, you can reach me on Instagram at mindful underscore hunter, email j at mindfulhunter.com or YouTube mindful underscore hunter. So we're going to open up with the training section of the podcast as always, and I'm actually going to touch on injuries again because it turns out that the slight shoulder injury I had was not actually, um, a minor tear like I thought it was, it's actually a pinched nerve. So I have, there's basically two locations, one up near my neck and one kind of near my rear delt that is inflamed. could actually be a, a disc issue as well. Um, the one near the top of my neck that are pretty highly inflamed and they're basically causing pressure on a nerve. And I didn't really understand how this whole process worked until I sat down with my my doctor and he kind of laid it all out. This doctor is a chiro, but he also does active release therapy and a whole bunch of other stuff. He's kind of like my soft tissue guy. When I have something going wrong that I, I can't figure out, I go see him. There's a strong argument to go see a physio, but I actually prefer chiros uh, who do ART, that's active release therapy or active release techniques. I can't remember which one for kind of acute soft tissue issues because their kind of specialty is opening things up that are either stuck or calcified or for whatever reason aren't moving the way that they're supposed to. And in my experience over the years, they're the guys that tend to be able to get me back in action as quickly as possible. So I went to see him thinking I had um, a shoulder issue and it turned out I actually had a neck issue and it's kind of gotten slowly worse over the past few days and week to the point where I'm just had to take some time off training just to kind of let the inflammation die down and let my body direct its resources to where it's needed. So the reason I'm sharing this is because I, I didn't really understand how the whole process worked and I think it might be beneficial for some of you guys to understand what's going on. So I'm actually feeling pain in the medial delt. So that's kind of like the cap of the delt, the delt on the outside of your shoulder that kind of leads down into the side of your arm. And I'm getting really sharp pain there, but there's not actually any injury or damage there. It's the nerve further back up towards my spine is being compressed. And when I go through ranges of motion that basically pull that nerve and then the, the nerve's not allowed to move, where it shoots the pain is kind of, I don't know if it's the next connection point or how exactly it works, but the pain I get is in the delt. So everything I was doing was for delt, but there's actually not much of a problem at the delt. It's further up the chain. Um, that's the other thing I find that chiros are really good at is like following things. Rarely is the issue where the pain is. It's normally like one or two steps back from there. There's some type of compression or things aren't moving the way that they're supposed to. And that is inhibiting, you know, proper movement patterns and then creates pain further down the chain. So basically what he has me doing now is I go in once or twice a week and he kind of puts pressure either with his thumb or his elbow or some other mechanism on the area where things are tight. And then he kind of forces my head and shoulder through these different movement patterns, kind of trying to like break up those muscle fibers and any other kind of, you know, mechanism that's, that's keeping those areas from moving the way that they should be. That's slowly opening back up. Now, on top of that, I'm also experimenting with BPC-157, which is a peptide, which are legal in Canada for research purposes. So I am using these peptides to research their efficacy on my own body. And there's a lot of research showing that BPC-157 can help 
Um, it, it's more to do with soft tissues like tendons and ligaments. So this is kind of like a, I don't know if it's the exact purpose for this particular peptide, um, but I wanted to try it to see if I could help expedite the process. So you basically buy this peptide, it's in form, um, powder form, you reconstitute it with bacteriostatic water, and then you inject it into the problem area twice per day. And I was injecting it into the delt, but now that I realize the issue is further up the chain, I'm going to start injecting my trap and closer to the back of my neck. And you, you could do this subcutaneously, but I prefer to do it intramuscularly, but you're not going deep. So you don't need to worry about hitting anything sensitive. I did this once before for golfer's elbow and it worked really, really well. You basically, the, the most common dosage protocol is somewhere between 250 and 350 micrograms twice daily for a period of three weeks. And if you don't see any benefit after that time period, it's probably not the protocol for you. There's probably other damage in there that BPC-157 isn't particularly good at. Another soft tissue peptide that is um, shows a great amount of promise is TB-500. TB-500 is actually on the WADA, the World's uh, Anti-Doping Association list. So that also shows up in the USADA list. The fighter Chad Mendez actually got popped for TB500, which is rather surprising. Someone in his camp must have just been a fucking idiot because uh, you can only produce this particular enzyme. It, it, you can only have it produced exogenously. Like there's, it's not, uh, it's not a mimic of anything that's already in your body. So there's no way that you would think it would get past a drug test. So either they're just dumb. Yeah. That's the only explanation. You're dumb. You, if you know you're getting drug tested, this is not a comp. There's lots of other compounds that I could see making a rational argument for because you could possibly get out of your system, or maybe it would look like something else when it metabolizes, but that's not the case with TB 500. So TB500 is another soft tissue peptide that if you're looking to research or experiment with these types of things that shows a lot of promise in helping expedite the recovery of, of certain soft tissues. Uh, there's a fairly common protocol as well to double up with BPC-157 and TB500 and do them both. I wanted to try the BPC-157 on its own first, partially because it's much more inexpensive. And I'd like to actually know which one of them works. And if you use them both at the same time and you do have some benefit, you'll never really know which one it is. And then next time you're in a similar situation, you're just going to have to double up again. I would be rather, I would rather be more selective with my compounds and understand which mechanisms are actually producing benefit. So I will keep you guys up to date and let you know how this particular protocol is working out for me. I have a fairly extensive experience with different PEDs and compounds and stuff. And I, I didn't know if it was going to be out of scope for this podcast or if it would be something in scope for this, for this podcast. So maybe let me know if that's, you know, is that something that some of you guys are interested in? Should I start covering more of those types of compounds in this podcast usage, dosage protocols, my own experience with different things? If that's something that interests you guys, um, I'm, I'm, I'm more than comfortable to expand more on my own individual experience and if that's going to benefit you guys. So maybe either leave a comment down below or hit me up with a comment and tell me if that's something that you'd like me to cover more moving forward. For now, I'm going to take another two, three days off the gym. That'll round it out to a full week. Then I think I'm going to take an additional full week and only do legs. I'm going to break up quads and hammies. I'm going to do one day on, one day off. So it'll be like quads, day off, hammies, day off, quads, day off rinse and repeat. Do that for another full week. That will have given my upper body a full two weeks off. I thought about training the right side, but because it's a neck issue, even some of the stuff I'm doing with my right um, arm is aggravating the left. This is a good moment too, to talk about priorities. Ultimately here, what really matters is the hunt. So I'm going on this goat hunt in less than six weeks. If I had to, I would stop training full stop between now and the goat hunt, if that's what it took to get this shoulder. That's why I just stopped training immediately because I was like, whoa, once I come back from the goat hunt, I don't have another hunt for four months. I will go beat the shit out of myself in the gym, but ultimately I need to be able to be in shape for this hunt. And if that means that I have to just not train upper body for six weeks in order to let this shoulder heal, that's what I'll do. People get far too worried about losing gains. Here's the deal. I'm not going to lose a significant amount of tissue in six weeks, especially if I'm still doing legs and cardio. It's nothing that I can't get back in three or four weeks once I ramp my calories back up and, and go hard in the gym. What I can't 
get back, so to speak, is starting a hunt with an injured shoulder. So I'm going to be rather conservative with this, protect the hunt, and then try and work around it to the best of my ability. All right, quick diet update. So if some of you may notice the progress pic that I threw up, I ended up putting on 52 pounds in 17 months, which is a fairly significant weight gain. And I maintained decent condition throughout, not shredded by any stretch of the imagination. But there's about four weeks left to this bulking cycle. And I recently submitted my last round of pictures. My calories have been fairly consistent really over the last month. Not a lot has been moved. But I only went from 261 to 262 over the last seven-day period. So my coach kind of saw that as stalling out. So he upped my calories. And I just thought it would be helpful to give you an example of what it looks like when you up your calories. Because a lot of people ask what my macros are and stuff. And I don't have a fucking clue. I just follow a diet. And what my coach tends to do when my diet goes up is he will just normally it's carbs that he plays with. And he will just selectively up the carbs in most of my meals. So for instance... This round, my carbs went up by, and I'm going to be talking about the weight of the food, not the number of grams of carbs themselves. So for instance, most of my meals were 250 grams of rice or 250 grams of potatoes previously, and he just put them all up to 280. And I have cream of rice for breakfast, and he put that up by an additional 35 or 40 grams. So if you think about it, by weight, 50 times four, I went up by about 200 grams of food, which is probably somewhere in the neighborhood of 60 grams of carbs per day, which would be like 240 calories. If we take that over the course of the week, that's maybe 1,750 calories that he increased my diet by. So that's not really that much. So I, I think I just wanted to share that to advocate the slower is better approach to diet modifications. You don't have to be changing things by hundreds of calories a day in order to see results. If you're looking to put on size, consistently monitor your weight. When you see yourself stall out, increase calories by a couple hundred a day, you know, increase carbs by 40 or 50 grams of carbs every day until you start seeing that scale go back up and then leave it alone until you stall out again. Putting on weight is just like dieting. You don't want to do anything too drastic because it's kind of like your body has so much change it's able to go through. And if you if you hit it too quickly, you will run out of levers to pull. So we'll talk about that more once we get into me prepping for a show because dieting, it's much more important. Like you wouldn't want to pull out all the stops and cut all your calories, do two hours of cardio, a bunch of clen, a bunch of T3, all in like the first, you know, week because- uh, then you'd have no levers left to pull. Your metabolism would end up stalling out and you wouldn't be able to lose any more weight without losing significant contractile tissue, which is not the goal when you're cutting. So an interesting gear update I'm going to do this week. There's not a lot of hunting content so far. Bear with me. We're going to get to the arrow building, I promise. Um, I bought a CPAP machine. Technically, I bought an ACPAP, which is an auto CPAP, which is basically one of these devices that people with sleep apnea need to use. I've talked about this before, but it, essentially, even when I was back at like 245, you just get to the point where you start having sleep apnea. And it's technically what, what happens is it's called obstructed sleep apnea. And you start getting like more tissue in the back of your throat. And it, when you start going to sleep, it relaxes and it obstructs your airway and you basically wake up choking. So most nights I wake up 10, 15, 20 times a night, really like every 35 to 40 minutes. It's kind of crazy when you say it like that. I don't really think much of it anymore because it's been like that for so long, but my wife started getting really concerned because like the, the volume and the intensity of the snoring is just like out of this world. Like she she basically says, it sounds like you're going to die every night. And she started getting concerned about my health. That was, I was, I started thinking like, okay, I should probably do something about this. So I started doing a bunch of research, found a decent CPAP machine and bought it. So I've only slept with it on for two nights. And I will say it's very challenging having something on your face. That's like forcing air down your throat. I definitely haven't hit the sweet spot yet where it's comfortable and where I'm sleeping for like five or six straight hours. I'm still waking up every hour or two. The one thing that was very interesting is that I was looking at my sleep data from my whoop and previously, so it tracks different levels of sleep from like awake to light to REM to deep. 
And previously with deep sleep, the kind of last, most restful, nourishing type of sleep, since I bought the Whoop a couple weeks ago, I have not been able to crack an hour. Most nights are 42 to 52 minutes. I had one night that was 28 minutes. And my overall sleep performance has been, my, my ranking has not been very high on the Whoop. Both nights with the CPAP machine on, I've gotten over an hour and 40 minutes. So I've more than doubled the amount of time that I spend in deep sleep when wearing the CPAP. And my theory is, I think I had these little micro wake-ups when I wasn't wearing the CPAP that I wasn't aware of. The way sleep cycles work is you start off at one, you spend a few minutes in there, you go to two, there's technically five, four being REM sleep. I'm trying to remember back to intro psych in university, so you forgive me if I'm slightly off on this. But essentially, you cycle through all five and then go back up to one, and then cycle through all five and then go back up to one. And you only get 15 or so minutes in REM and deep sleep every time you cycle down. So essentially, for more restful sleep, you need to have more cycles, which means less interruptions. Because if you go down to like level three and then get woken up because of shortness of breath, you go all the way back to level one. So you could go one, two, three, wake up, one, two, wake up, one, two, three, four, wake up, one, two, three, four, five. And you would have essentially went through almost four or five cycles before you finally hit five. So my theory with the CPAP is that I'm being allowed... I'm not getting these micro wake-ups and it's letting me cycle all the way down. So even though I still feel like I'm waking up every hour or so, I think I'm getting through full cycles of sleep and maybe it's when I'm naturally cycling, cycling back up to the light sleep that then I'm, I'm waking up due to like discomfort of the mask or there's heated hoses in there and it's humidified. So it's like a bit of a weird feeling. It's not, I wouldn't say it's totally uncomfortable, but it's definitely not just like, going to sleep. Like there's clearly something on your face. So it distracts you and it, it kind of draws your attention to it. So I'm keeping very detailed records of my sleep patterns right now. And I'll do like a more thorough review once I have like at least a month or so of data. And I feel like I've really got the CPAP dialed in. If anyone is going to get one, I highly recommend an auto CPAP. Basically, this automatically adjusts the amount of pressure required. It, it tracks your breathing, like monitors it real time. And then it has software in there that will change the pressure based on the feedback that you're giving it. It's quite dangerous to use a CPAP without doctor's prescription. So typically what you would do is you would go to a sleep clinic. They would monitor your sleep. Based on that, they would write you a prescription of sorts, which is basically like the set of instructions for the CPAP machine, which would be like how much back pressure um, in a bunch of different settings that would set the CPAP up to give you what you need for your particular type of apnea. I didn't do that, of course, because I'm always trying to figure things out on my own, probably ridiculous and you know, pretty fucking stupid. But because of the auto CPAP, you can kind of figure it out yourself with like a bunch of different settings and just like playing around with it. But without that auto function, this is like the next generation of CPAP machines. It, it can be pretty dangerous. So I don't recommend buying a first gen CPAP machine. If you're going to do something on your own, get a auto CPAP. I got the Philips Respironic Dream Station. It's the auto and it has the humidifier in it. I highly recommend the humidifier. I didn't know it had the humidifier in it the first night. And I woke up with a really dry nose a couple times and then read more instructions the next night and realized there's like a little bucket to pour some water in the back. And it's just real light humidification in the hose, but it's more natural. And I, it, I did not get the same dry nose feeling the next night. So I will keep a bunch of records and I'll do a more thorough review up on that. But if you're having heavily disrupted sleep, I would really look into something like this or another solution um, because I think you're probably robbing yourself of a lot of quality of life. I know it's just starting to get to the point where I'd wake up and feel like I wasn't sleeping at all and I was slowly losing my fucking mind. So I'm hoping once I get this whole thing sorted out, I will be in a, in a slightly better place with my sleep patterns. So I'll keep you guys updated. Okay, the next thing I want to talk on is draw information updates. Now that we're in active draw season or draw application season for some of the Western states, I want to start off each podcast with like a little update of what my strategy is and what I'm doing. Because I realized, although I gave a good high-level overview in the two-part series, How to Apply for Western Big Game Hunting for Canadians, I didn't really give a lot of good micro strategies, like how to actually play the states off of each other. So here's a perfect example of how to do that. So right now, Wyoming is open to apply for the draw. 
Arizona is just about to open to apply for the draw and Montana in like a couple weeks or a month will be open. But I wanted to share an exact strategy about how you can play these three states off of each other. The way Wyoming works is it has a, a, a modification withdrawal date and that is May 10th. So even though you have to apply for Wyoming before the Arizona results come out, after the Arizona results come out, you are still able to technically withdraw your application from Wyoming at no penalty. You can use Montana the same way. So let me walk through this in real time. Arizona opens. It closes on February 11th. It draws on March 8th. So I go into Arizona. I shoot the moon. I go for like ultra premium archery elk tag, middle of the rut, super low odds. Now, those results do not get released before Wyoming gets released. However, I apply for Wyoming while I'm waiting for Arizona. Then Arizona comes out. If Arizona comes out and I get a tag, I can still modify or withdraw because the Arizona comes out March 8th. I have until May 10th to withdraw my Wyoming tag. The reason this is important is that there are no returns in Wyoming. So if there wasn't this modification withdrawal date, you could potentially draw two elk tags and then you'd be stuck either having to get a shitload of time off work or just bailing on one. Further to that, Montana then opens and closes on March 15th and the results come out April 20th. So if Arizona results come out on March the 8th, I have I don't have to apply for Montana until after that because it doesn't close until March 15th. So I have a week after the Arizona draw results get released where I can still apply for Montana. Now here's the crazy part. The Montana results come out on April 20th, which is a full month before the modification withdrawal date for Wyoming, which is May 10th. So technically, I can do the same thing with Montana that I did with Arizona. I can apply in Montana. It's going to get, the results are going to come out. If I do get the Montana tag, I withdraw my Wyoming application. If I don't get the Montana tag, I leave my, and that's my safety bet. Like I know I have enough points for a general tag in Wyoming that I know for a fact I will draw. So I put in for a super premium hunt in Arizona. If I get it, I don't have to apply anywhere else. I can withdraw my Wyoming tag. If I don't get it, I apply in Montana. If I do get that tag, I withdraw in Wyoming. If I don't get that tag, I leave my tag and get my sure thing in Wyoming. So that way I'm applying for three states for really good tags. I have good odds in two of them, and I have zero chance of getting stuck with a tag or having to burn a tag. Um, so there's an example. It's pretty rare that it works out perfectly like that. Like the rest of the season, there's not really such a clear cut example as that. Um, but these are the kind of things you want to, if you're going to play multiple states off of each other, this is the kind of shit you have to pay attention to and look for like these little arbitrage opportunities. All right. Now that we've got all that out of the way, let's dive into the actual arrow building content right out of the gate. I want to be clear. I would say this is a guide aimed at beginner to intermediate archers and arrow builders. If you're an expert, maybe it's worth listening to because maybe there's a couple pointers in here you can glean from, but I am by no means a Levi Morgan, Aaron Snyder type of guy. I'm like a, an average Joe Archer that's just kind of figured shit out on my own. I think there's benefit to learning things from a guy like me though, because I still know the things that guys like you got stuck on, whereas the experts take a lot for granted. So I just wanted to be clear with that. I'll do my best to not make any mistakes, but if you know more than me and you want to leave a comment that I, I messed something up or there's a slightly better way to do something, I think we would all benefit from sharing that knowledge. So please feel free. Um, I just wanted to be very clear about that so I don't try and come off like somebody that I'm not. Also, for all of my archery needs, I buy literally everything from Lancaster Archery Supply. They always have everything in stock. Their shipping is super cheap as long as you buy over 100 or 150 bucks worth of stuff, and it gets to Canada relatively quickly. There really is no decent archery shops in Canada. I know that seems ridiculous. Maybe you live buy one that's better, but I live in Vancouver and I'm just going to be completely honest. The archery shops here are shit. 
they're kind of either focused on recurve guys or target guys. There's not a single decent hunting shop within three or four hours. I would say the best one is Riverside Archery down in Washington. I've been there a couple times. Those guys are amazing. Great Botex, lots of equipment in stock, but there's nothing in the lower mainland. And the few guys I did deal with, I'm not going to name names, but I was really, really disappointed at the lack of actual hunting archery information they had. Like I got an 80 pound bow back and it was pulling 71 pounds. And the guy was like, well, I'm not strong enough to pull back an 80 pound bow. So I just guessed. I was like, you got a fucking drawboard. Like you don't need to pull it back with your hand. You fucking idiot. Anyways, there's a lot of stuff that goes on. Like they, he wouldn't paper tune a bow because he only thought it was important to group tune. And I'm like, that's because you don't shoot with broadheads, you numbed hard. So it, there's a lot of stuff that goes on at bow shops that it, that's why I finally just bought my own press, built my own arrows. I do everything at home now because it was the only way that I could guarantee the quality that I wanted. Plus the side benefit was once I actually understood the me- mechanics and how to fix everything, it actually helped me understand how everything worked as well. So then I could actually visualize the way my system was working better. And I don't know if it was just like um, a placebo effect, but my archery got significantly better. Like my skill itself, my, my, my accuracy and my consistency got notably better once I started fixing all my stuff. And my theory is it just comes from such a deeper understanding of your gear. Like when you understand it better, you're able to use it better. Um, so that being said, I order everything from Lancaster archery. I fully support, you know, learning how to do these things on yourself. The only thing that's really expensive is the bow press. Um, and if you're in Vancouver and you want to work on your bow, just shoot me a DM. You can come use my bow press for free because I don't use it that much because I only have one bow. So as long as everything's in tune, it kind of just sits in the corner. Um, I actually had this idea of trying to find a few hunters in the lower mainland that wanted to chip in like two, 300 bucks a piece and just rent like a little, one of those little offices or one of those little warehouse spaces. Like one of those, um, you see them all the time. They got like one big garage bay and then like a little office and they rent for like 1500 bucks a month out in Coquitlam and shit. And I was going to try and find like a half a dozen guys to chip in on one of those. And we could each, you know, bring whatever equipment we had. Like if one guy had, you know, bullet loading equipment and I had uh, the bow press and some other archery tools. And if it was such a small group of people that you could just trust everybody, then everybody would have access to this like shop and use it 24 seven whenever they needed to. And I'm still playing with that in the back of my mind. So if you're in the lower mainland and something like that appeals to you, let me know because um, I'm, I'd be totally down, especially with all the YouTube stuff I'm doing now. It'd also give me a place to shoot YouTube videos. Um, so yeah, anyways, that's kind of off topic. Lancaster Archery, highly recommend it. Bow shops in Vancouver, highly do not recommend them. I went through a few different kind of strategies about how I wanted to break this information down. And there's really no way to, to talk about it in a linear way perfectly. So first, what I'm going to do is give you an exhaustive list of everything that you have to have in order to build your own arrows. And some of that information is going to seem a little complete because we're not going to be able to talk about the exact specifics, but then we're going to go back. And once we know everything we need to build it, then we can talk about, you know, arrow selection, component selection, point weight, and all like the kind of intricacies of arrow building. And I should say that even the term arrow building is a little bit misleading. There's, it, it's almost like arrow design and then arrow construction because half of it is deciding what you want your arrow to be. You know, is it going to be an equally weighted heavy arrow? Is it going to be a high FOC arrow? Are you going for a fast arrow? What do you want for point weight? Are you going to be using mechanical or fixed? How many veins do you want? What material do you want for veins? Are you going to use a wrap? How long is it going to be like... Those are all design-related questions. Once we answer those questions, we'll have a list of materials. Then I can walk you through how to actually put those materials together and build your arrow. So I guess using that framework, first I'm going to go through the list of tools and equipment that you need. Then I'm going to go through how we can successfully design our arrow and select all those components. Then I'm going to go through how we actually physically build the arrow, which is incredibly simple, actually. Once It's like pretty, you're like gluing a couple things to a stick. It's really all there is to it. Um, so with that said, let's dive right into it. So up first arrows. Um, I like black Eagle rampage. I think Easton axis are another nice arrow that you can buy. I'm not a huge fan of super skinnies only because I have issues tuning them. Um, and rampage and axis, although they're not cheap arrows, I would say that 
you know, they're my version of a reasonable arrow kind of bugs me when people have issues, you know, spending a hundred, 150 bucks on, on a dozen arrows. It's like, you know, how many animals do you plan to kill with a dozen arrows? Like, and it bothers you just like, what does it cost to go on a hunt? And you would, you know, try and save 20 or 30 bucks and take a serious degradation in the quality of the construction of your arrows just doesn't make any sense to me. So I'll say right now in Canadian, like it probably costs me depending on the components and everything, like 250 bucks to build a dozen arrows that's with components and, and everything attached to it. Um, and I'm okay with that. You know, that's 20 bucks an arrow, um, seems a little bit steep when you say it like that. But if you think about it, if you're not losing them at the range, like I I can get through a season with a dozen arrows, no problem. That's practicing. That's hunting. I've had seasons where I've, I've shot four animals with arrows to tell you the truth. And I used, I re I can reuse all four arrows. I've never actually broke an arrow on, on an animal. I've even accidentally shot an animal with a broadhead that already went through another animal without resharpening it. And that wasn't a problem either. I really like rampage and axis. There's lots of other great options out there, but if you just want to start with something, you can't go wrong with either of those arrows. I buy what's tend to be called match grade. So you're going to be looking for a 0.001 straightness tolerance and a 0.05 grain tolerance. This is essentially the best of the best of the arrows. So when Black Eagle makes 10,000 Rampage arrows, they spine test and, and weight sort each arrow. And then all of the arrows that have 0.001 straightness deficit or less go in the grade A pile. The 0.003s go in the grade B pile. And I think they even have 0.005s or they might just cull everything after that. Then they weight sort the A pile. I think they also weight sort the B pile, but it's like a, it's like a greater, the tolerance is, is greater. It's a 0.5 grain tolerance. So that means when the, the blank arrow, which is 32 inches long, there will only be 0.5 of a grain difference between each of the arrows. The reason that this is important is that I used to try and save weight with cheaper arrows, but then when you get into spin test them or weight sort them, there'd be these like drastic differences or they wouldn't spin true. And you'd kind of basically end up throwing arrows or just have like a big pile of like shitty target arrows. And you'd end up buying in order to make a clean dozen, you'd end up buying 17, 18, 19, 20 arrows. Now, obviously you're not going to buy 20 arrows. You buy them by the dozen for the most part, but I'm saying like over the course of a couple of years, you would end up kind of burning 30 to 40% of your arrows because they weren't high enough quality. So even though those arrows are cheaper, by the time you cull the shitty ones, you haven't saved yourself any money. So I did the math. You're better off just buying the grade A arrows. So I think with the Eastern Axis, they're called the match grade. And with Black Eagle Rampage, they're called the 0.001s or the 0.05s. Um, and that is what I recommend um, you you focus on because it's better value for your money. And it's also, you're just going to have a higher quality arrow when everything is, is done. I'm going to discuss spine selection later. I'm also going to discuss length later. So I don't want you to think I'm going to forget those, but just know on our, on our shopping list so far, we have arrows up next components. Now there are an endless list of components from a variety of manufacturers and lots of people make really good stuff. I've gone through four sets of components. I have finally settled on the iron will components. They're not cheap. They're expensive bottom line. I'm not going to bullshit you. If they're out of your price range, just go with the components that come with the arrow. If you buy black Eagle arrows, they come with this half out that to be honest, it's not bad, man. It totally works and it's free and it, and it's decent. So that's what I would do. But if you, if you're trying to build like your, your dozen like platinum killer arrows, get the iron will components and we'll get into weight selection later. They tune better than anything I've ever had. They install better than anything I've ever had. Just the quality of construction of everything that Bill makes at Iron Will is beyond reproach. So that's my recommendation for components. And again, we are going to, we're going to touch on weight of components later. The other note I want to make when we get into arrow length, some components will affect your arrow length. For example, the half outs stick out up to a half an inch past the end of your cut arrow. So you will end up 
with an arrow half an inch longer than the arrow that you cut. So that means you have to cut an extra half inch off to compensate for that. Now, when you look at the components, they tell you that, but just keep that in mind because it will have an effect overall. Okay, up next, let's talk about wraps. I use boning carbon arrow wraps. I'll be honest, I primarily use them for the visual component. I find the contrast between really bright colors. I use of like a floral yellow for my wrap and a floral orange for my veins, and it just sticks out really well in most backgrounds. It makes my arrows easier to find. Um, it also makes it easier to revein arrows because you can de-wrap. There's like a de like a stripping tool you buy, and it makes it easier to like clean the arrow and just install a new wrap, and you have a fresh, clean surface. Um, the one caveat to that is it makes single vein replacement almost impossible. I used to not use wraps. And if let's say you tore one vein, it was pretty easy to get rid of that vein, clean that one bit of surface and just refletch that one vein. You can't really do that with wraps because you can't scrape the glue off of the vinyl of the wrap. It just ends up ripping the wrap and the whole thing goes to shit. So you just end up ditching all the veins, stripping the wrap, cleaning the arrow, rewrapping it and reveining it, which probably ends up in a better product in the long run anyways. And as I have vein injuries, I just stick them all in a pile. And once I've got like a half a dozen over there, I run them through all and, and refletch them all at once. Now for veins, I've gone through a bunch of different ones. The ones I've finally settled on are the AAE hybrid 2.6s. Physically, from an appearance perspective, these are identical to the AAE Max Stealth 2.7 inches. I don't know why they're called 2.6s when they're actually 2.7 inches. I also don't really care. I love the shape of the Max Stealth, but with Max Stealth, you have to have a primer pen and cleaning wipe. So you have to have a like a wet wipe type thing with an alcohol component on it to clean your carbon arrow. Then you have to have a primer pen that you apply primer to each of the veins and it can't be on there for too long. So you have to kind of do each vein before you glue it on. It's a total pain in the ass. And if you don't use the primer pen correctly, or it sits on there for too long or whatever the fuck, the veins don't stick as well as they should. The hybrid veins have completely solved this problem. They have this like lick and stick technology, which is essentially they're pre-primed. So you just run a bead of glue, stick them, and they're on there like concrete. It's phenomenal. Um, so that's, I strongly recommend that. The other vein I really liked in the past was the AAE Max Hunter. Now it's slightly more higher profile, meaning it's a shorter vein, but it sticks out further from your arrow. Essentially still gives you the same surface area, maybe slightly less, but the way I shoot, um, I don't know if I draw back particularly far or my anchoring position or my face is just wide. I would always have veins tickling me right between my lip and my chin. And I don't like heavy vein contact because it produces, um, inconsistencies in arrow flight. Cause sometimes you're pushing on it a lot. Sometimes you're pushing on it a little, not only that, it's just plain tickled. Like it would literally tickle my face and it was really pissing me off when I switched to the, uh, the max stealth profile because they're shorter, they don't stick out as far from the arrow. That problem went away. So that's just a very practical reason why, but why I like the max stealth shape, but the max hunters are a very good vein as well. I've primarily run AAE since I started shooting. I'm sure there's lots of other options like blazer veins and people talk about other veins all the time. So experiment like, you know, see what you like. But for me, that's what I choose to run. Knox. I really like Easton G Knox. And the reason is simple. They tend to clip onto my center serving of my bow really well, and yet are still loose enough that the that the arrow can freely rotate around the serving. If your knock is too tight, you will get inconsistencies in arrow flight because it's not releasing cleanly every time. And if your knock is too loose, your arrow can fall off of your string. Or again, you will get inconsistent knock uh, travel because it can be at a slightly different place. So it's like you want it tight, but not too tight. Goldilocks type shit. And the Easton G knocks for me have just always worked. Um, so that's what I run on most of my gear. Now for tools, you need a fletching jig. If you're on a budget, I recommend the Bitsenberger by the right helical, um, or, um, the straight jig that you could then offset to the right. If you want, I wouldn't buy the left helical. I'll get into that in a minute. 
Now, I would also recommend buying the $30 upgrade kit. This is on Lancaster Archery. It will increase the consistency of the tool significantly. It's worth it for an extra 30 bucks. Now, I that's what I used to use and I still have one here. Um, what I use now is the Lancaster Archery Veinmaster Pro. It's really expensive. It's like 300 bucks or something, but I think it's worth it. It is a really high quality tool and the consistency of my vein application has gone up tremendously. You also have a lot more configurability. You can customize the vein application in a lot more ways than you can with the Bitsenberger. So if you've got the cash, go with the Veinmaster Pro. If you don't, go with the Bitsenberger. Glues. I highly recommend AAE Max Bond for your veins and AAE Max Impact for your inserts. That's what I've always used. I've never had issues with either of those adhesives. And in fact, I've tried four other insert adhesives, even two-part epoxies, and nothing has been as reliable as the AAE Max Impact. Um, I have never lost an insert, pulled one out in a Target or anything like that. Whereas with the other adhesives, I've lost at least one with all of them. Maybe it didn't cure right. Maybe there wasn't enough on there. I don't know. All I know is that Max Impact has never failed me and all the rest have at least once. Up next, buy the G5 Aero Squaring device. It's like a little plastic handle with like a little hunk of almost sandpaper-like material on the end. And you're gonna use this to square your arrows. We'll get into that in a minute. Buy the Pine Ridge Aero Spinner. You need a de-wrapping tool. So again, G5 makes a really nice one. It's basically like just a piece of, it's like a metal tool that has a crescent cut out of the end of it that like goes down to almost like a blade that's not quite sharp and it just strips. It's like a stripping tool and it will strip the wrapping off of your arrows when you go to revein them. Finally, you could buy an arrow saw. I don't. They're like the one I want, last chance arrow came or last chance archery came out with one. It's beautiful. I want it. I don't really have room to set it up. So I'm holding off on it. And for like 25 cents an arrow, Lancaster archery will cut your arrows. Now this does take away some tuning options. Like you can't bear shaft tune and take off a quarter inch and tune and take off a quarter inch and tune. But I kind of know what I want my setup to be anyways. And to be honest, I'm probably not a good enough archer where that type of, you know, finicky shit actually makes a difference in my consistency. So I would say an arrow saw is highly optional. I would recommend saving money for a bow press before you save money for an arrow saw. But if you got tons of cash, fuck it. Last Chance Archery makes a really nice arrow saw. Okay, now that we have all our tools and our equipment out of the way, let's talk about the actual design of the arrow itself. So first things we're gonna do is start with the spine. That's gonna be the base of our kind of recipe here. I recommend going to the spine chart for your particular arrow manufacturer. All spine charts are built assuming you have a hundred grain point weight. Some spine charts will have two, some manufacturers will have two spine charts, like a hundred and 125. I have yet to see one that's ever gone over 125 though. It will also incorporate your draw length. So what I recommend doing is going to your draw length your bow poundage, and then seeing what your spine should be. And then because I'm going to advocate for a heavier point weight, go up one. So if the chart says 350, go to 300 or 250. Like if you're in the lower end of the 350, I'd go all the way to 250. If you're in the upper end of 350, you could go to 300. You're also gonna be somewhat limited here by the choices that the manufacturer offers you. For example, not all manufacturers have spines every 50. Sometimes they jump by 100 or even 150. So once you've decided at your spine. We're going to bump up one for safety because like I discussed on a previous episode, you're better to be overspined than underspined. Best case scenario, you're perfect, but in the real world, a little bit of extra spine isn't going to actually produce any errors in arrow flight for the most part. Um, now that we have our arrow and we have our arrow spine, and we know how long roughly we want. You can look at your draw length and you're going to know roughly within a half an inch how long you want your arrow. All arrows are going to be a certain weight, like grain per inch. So now we're going to have a starting point. So let's say our arrow is 10 grains per inch and it's going to be a 30 inch arrow. Now, our, now we have a base weight of 300 grains, okay? Now, I like a balanced arrow to end up between 500 and 600 grains total. 
I would say the longer your draw length is and the heavier your bow, the heavier your arrow can be. So I'm an 80 pound bow with a 30 inch draw length. I can be up at 600. If you were a 70 pound bow with a 28 inch draw length, I'd say go towards 500. If you're anywhere in between, go somewhere in between. So once we have our arrow and our length, now we can use our components to hit whatever final weight we want. So once we've weighed out all of our veins, our wraps, our knocks, um, and everything else to do with the arrow, the only thing left is the components at the end. So let's say the goal is a 550 grain arrow. And we have, let's say a 350 grain bear shaft total. And let's say by the time we put on all of our veins and wraps, it's another 50 grains, which is approximate. Most veins weigh between eight and 12 grains. So that's going to get us in the neighborhood. So now we have 400 grains of arrow with nothing on the end. I wanted to get to 550. So now what I'm going to do is between my components and my point, I am going to get it to another 150. I would probably go with 50 grain components and a hundred grain point weight or 25 grain components and 125 grain point weight. Also, once you start shooting a lot and building up like lots of broadheads and other stuff, you're going to kind of be locked in like all my broadheads, my mechanical, my fixed blade, everything I own is 125 grain broadhead, which means I tend to just adjust my component weight because it's cheaper to hit what I want to hit. I personally run 50 grain components with 125 grain broadhead or field tip. That's the other thing. You're going to need to buy field tips and broadheads that weigh the same, obviously, so that your arrow shoots the same way when you're practicing or when you're hunting. Now, you can kind of mess with this to a certain degree. The shorter you make your arrow, the stiffer it will be. So for instance, I went from a 30 inch arrow to a 29 and a half inch arrow because I realized I still had some room to play and I wanted my arrow to be a little bit lighter and a little bit stiffer. So by shortening your arrow, you can make it stiffer. By adding weight in the rear, like for instance, putting on a 15 grain wrap makes your arrow stiffer. Weight in the rear stiffens an arrow. Weight in the front loosens or weakens an arrow. Hence why... I told you if you're going to go above 100 grain point weight, you need to add stiffness to your arrow, which is why we're going to drop down one block on the spine chart. So now essentially we've got everything we need to know. We've, we've chosen the spine of our arrow, the length of our arrow, the components that are going on the back, and then the weight of the components up front. Now, you do have some options between three and four vein. You could do up two batches and go and shoot them and see which ones you like better. I shoot fixed blade. Four veins will correct a fixed blade arrow flight faster than three veins. And I've got so much horsepower with the 80 pound bow, I just shoot four fletch. Now, there is an issue that you could be creating more of an opportunity for wind drag, which could impact arrow flight. However, I am prioritizing the corrective abilities of the veins over the potential wind drag component of the veins. And in my experience, it's worked really well. My broadhead flight increased significantly once I put four veins on the back. Um, so that's my recommendation. If you don't know what you're doing, just put four veins. Here's another very practical pro tip. It doesn't matter how you knock a four-fletched arrow. Just stick it on. It will always be in the right position. That is not the case with a three-fletched arrow. You will always have to make sure the cock vein is up or you could get like veins interacting with your cables or bus strings and other weird shit going on. And I've been in the moment hunting before and stuck an arrow on the wrong way. Take it off, put it back on. You're shaking, shit's going crazy. So for me, that advantage alone is enough of a reason to go with four fletch because it really adds to the simplicity of your setup. The simpler we can make shit, the more reliable shit will be. All right, now we know everything we need to actually make our arrow. How do we actually build it? So like I said before, I have Lancaster cut all my arrows for me. I know exactly how long I want them to be. If this is your first time building arrows, 
Just measure some of the store-bought ones you have that you know work for you. If you think they're a little long, you can go a little bit shorter. If you like them, just get them cut the same length. I was going to say you can't have an arrow too long, but it is weaker the longer it is. So you do need to keep that. But having an extra half an inch to three quarters of an inch of arrow at the end is not that big a deal. Cutting off an inch too much is a big deal because it won't fit anymore. Um, so if you're concerned, go a half an inch or three quarters of an inch longer because at least it will still work. And then the next, you're going to build round after round after round of arrows as the years go by. So the next dozen you buy, shave off a half an inch, see if you like it better. Like it, it, it's, it's a minimal difference and you can experiment with it as time goes by. So we're going to have Lancaster cut our arrows. Immediately, I'm going to spin test them right out of the gate because then I can choose which end I want to put stuff on. It doesn't really matter, but it's just to get a good idea about how straight my arrows are. Even with the 0.001, I still get two or three that aren't great. And I like to see that before I can put my components on so that I know my components aren't what have introduced an, an inappropriate spin to the arrow because I'm going to get into this, but if your ends aren't square and you don't apply things evenly and true, that can make your arrows spin after the fact, spin incorrectly after the fact as well. Spin them all. Then we're going to square them all. I like squaring both ends. Some people don't square the knock end. That's up to you. You basically grab, it's, it's a fairly finicky process. You basically grab your squaring device and you just roll the arrow back and forth and it shaves like a microscopic amount off the end. Here's a pro tip. Carbon arrows are black. Buy yourself a silver Sharpie. Take the silver Sharpie and cover the end of the arrow in silver Sharpie, not the side, the face. You will know you're done squaring when all the silver is gone. And you'll actually see how unsquare your arrow is because as you square the arrow, you're going to have silver disappear from one part of the arrow face before the rest. So we square all our arrows. Now we prep and wrap all our arrows. So I wipe it all down with some kind of wet wipe or alcohol solution on some pads. I put the wraps on all the arrows. I install veins before I install components. Doesn't really matter which one you do. I also like to leave some cure time between each step. So I install all my veins. When you're installing veins, I highly recommend doing a dry run first. You need perfectly flush contact with the face of the vein and the edge of the arrow in order to ensure good adhesion. With the Bitsenberger jigs, because it's like a cast aluminum, they're not all perfectly square. And sometimes you'll have to take some rough grit sandpaper and kind of grind down some of the edges so that it fits perfectly smooth against the arrow. So I always do a couple dry runs first and make sure like I watch as the vein contacts the side of the arrow and I make sure that the entire vein is contacting at the same time. And that will give me a flush, good you know, adhesion. Same thing with the Veinmaster Pro. The way it works, there's these like two things that you twist and that can change the helical. Now for helical and offset, I like two to three degrees with or without right helical. If you're going to go right helical, you could just do a degree of offset. It doesn't really matter. At the end of the day, I like a moderate twist to my veins. Whether you achieve that through offset or helical doesn't fucking matter. There, you know, there's a lot of people who may argue on that or going to get into the finer points. At the end of the day, you are just incentivizing your arrow to spin to the right. And as long as there is some twist to those veins, that will happen. If you're Levi Morgan, you're probably going to worry more about this. None of us are, so don't. Um, so a little right helical with a little bit of offset is what I normally shoot for. And that's worked incredibly well for me throughout the years. Now, once we have done a dry run of our veins, I do three drops of glue per vein. So I'll do a drop at each end and drop in the middle. And then I just run the tip of the adhesive bottle up and down the vein to spread those out. Less glue, the better. If you put too much in there, it's going to squirt all over the sides. It's going to make a mess. You would be shocked at how little glue you need to fill that little channel on the face of the vein. It's not much at all. So we put on our little glue and then depending on what fletching jig you're using, you let it stick. I'll be honest with the quality of the adhesives and the components these days, you don't need any more than, you know, 15 seconds and then you pull it off and get going 
onto your next one. So then we're gonna install all our veins, glue them on our wraps, we're good to go. I normally then let those sit overnight and just make sure everything is cured and dry and completely set up. After that, I will go to do the components. And I'll do the same thing that I did last time. I might even, with the iron wheel components, it comes with this little wire brush. So I'm gonna rough up the inside of the arrow and then I'm gonna take a very fine sandpaper and rough up the outside of the arrow. Then I'm gonna take my wipes and my Q-tips. I'm gonna clean the inside. I'm gonna clean the outside so that all the carbon dust is gone. I'm gonna make, before I do that, I made sure that everything was squared. Then again, without using an overabundance of adhesive, with, with the hit inserts from Iron Will, you're gonna sink the hit insert first. So there's this little tool, you put the hit insert on there, you run a rib of glue upon the threads of the hit insert, you drop that in, and then I drop those in for all dozen and I'll give that a few hours or even I'll let it even cure overnight again before I insert or before I glue on the collar. So with Iron Will, it's a two-part component system, the hit insert and the collar. First, you put the hit insert in and then you put the collar on. Some component systems are just one piece, like the half out from Black Eagle is just one piece that you got to glue on. The focus system from Black Eagle is two parts. I used to use the focus system. I highly recommend against using the focus system. It's got this one screw in there that always comes loose for some fucking reason. And then um, they were really hard to tune. I thought I was going to like the fact that I could spin my broadheads, but I didn't. So I don't recommend using the focus system. Once we have all that done and it's cured, we're going to re-spin test all of our arrows. And I'm going to spin test them with field points and with broadheads. This is, this is the part where it's worth getting finicky. Some of your broadheads might even fit into some of your components slightly differently, and they're going to match up better with other arrows. So if I get an arrow that's not spinning exactly perfect, I might try two or three broadheads or two or, two or three different field points just to rule out the fact that it might be the field tip or the broadhead causing the inconsistency and not the arrow itself. If it's not, you can bend some of the inconsistencies out of an arrow. So pay attention to the way it's spinning, you know, put it on your table, give it a press. Sometimes I haven't had great luck with that, but sometimes that works. Because I use such high grade components with the arrows and the components and the adhesives, I find even my worst spinning arrows are still acceptable for target practice. So out of a dozen, I'll normally get eight or nine perfect arrows. Like I'm talking fucking perfect, like NASA engineer design shit, perfect. Then I'll get two or three that are like, nah, it's all right. It's not perfect, but it's all right. I put little marks on all my perfect ones. And those are the ones I always take hunting. The other ones I use for practice first. So if I break an arrow, miss a target, something happens at the range, I'm losing one of my imperfect arrows, not one of my perfect arrows. And every time I go hunting, I make sure I have at least a quiver full of those perfect arrows and probably another half a dozen either in my backpack or at the truck. That's essentially how you build arrows. I'm sure I've glossed over some points that might've been important for some people. I've got some questions here I'm still gonna dive into. I was very intimidated when I first went to build my first batch of arrows. I thought it was gonna be very complicated it's not. I'm really glad that I decided to get into it because I feel like I have much higher quality gear now that I'm building it myself. So I would urge you to just pull the trigger, man. If you need to hit me up on Instagram or email and you want a little bit more clarification or you're a little bit nervous about which components to buy, at least just get started. All right, let's get into some of these questions that people asked. So Corey Wilson says, which archery supply store would you recommend north of the border? The answer is none. Order your shit from Lancaster you're better off. Mark Murdoch says, necessary equipment. We already went uh, through that. Uh, Downtown Pauling Redneck says, 516 grain arrow with 100 grain heads. Would you go with a heavier head? Now, at first glance, my answer was yes. I wanted him up at 150. Then I messaged him back and found out he actually also had 75 grain components with 100 grain head. So in order for us to all be on the same page, I want you to think about point weight to include your components. Point weight is going to be everything on the front end of the arrow. 
So he should have said, I have a 516 grain arrow with 175 grains up front. If he'd have said that, I would have said, perfect setup, love it, don't change a goddamn thing. If it had only been 100, I would have said, add another 50 grains up front. Um, but as it stands, um, it's a great setup. He also said he's looking to upgrade broadheads anyway. Because he already has Easton components weighing 75 grams, I recommended the Iron Will 100 grain. There's really no need to have 200 grains up front with his setup. That would be overkill. And in my opinion, would be too much FOC. Lucas asks, what do you run for big game? I only hunt big game. My setup is a Black Eagle Rampage, AAE hybrid veins, boning carbon wraps, Easton G-Knock, 50 grain stainless steel iron wheel components, and a solid 125 grain iron wheel double bevel broadhead, not the new single bevel. Uh, Zach asks, what is the best arrow for a bow? For example, weight, draw length, how heavy does my arrow need to be? We've gone through all of that. So just go listen to the podcast and go look at the spine chart for the arrow that you want to build. And Brass Tanak says helical or not. I would say yes to helical, but if you can do an offset and you don't own the gear to go helical, that also works. So that's okay too. Okay, guys, I am going to wrap it up there. I hope that was beneficial and cleared up some stuff for everybody. As always, if you want more clarification or need for information, please just drop a comment below, shoot me an email or hit me up on Instagram. And if you could take a minute to like, comment, share, or subscribe, that would greatly help me beat the algorithm demons and get this thing ranked up a little bit higher. All right. Have a good one. Thanks for tuning in.